and Answers begins right now. What does it mean to be a man? What is the definition of masculinity? Is masculinity a good trait or a negative trait that needs to be reformed? Does Christianity promote male superiority and the oppression of women? Why does there seem to be a lot of hostility towards men and masculinity? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with our host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In our broadcast today, Pat interviews best-selling author Dr. Nancy Piercy on her book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, and discusses how we can restore biblical manhood in our churches and our culture. Let's begin part one of this three-part interview. Here's our host, Pat. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the issues of today. Well, what does it mean to be a man? What is the definition of masculinity? Is masculinity a good trait or a negative trait that needs to be changed? Does Christianity promote male superiority and the oppression of women? In our culture today, people are confused about gender, family, and sexuality. What does the Bible teach about manhood and womanhood? And why does there seem to be a war on masculinity? Well, to help us address this issue is best-selling author, scholar, and speaker, Dr. Nancy Piercy. Dr. Piercy is the author of several best-selling books. Got them all on my back shelf here, including Total Truth, How Now Shall We Live? The Soul of Science and Love Thy Body answering the hard questions about life and sexuality. She is currently a professor and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University, and she is considered one of the top female apologists and hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical female intellectual. So today we're talking about her new book here, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. So Nancy, welcome to Evidence and Answers. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, Dr. Piercy, tell us about why you as a woman felt the need to address this issue and write this book, The Toxic War on Masculinity. Well, what caught my eye was that it has become very socially acceptable to express incredible hostility against men these days. I start the book with several examples. The Washington Post had an article titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? And that was my first example. I thought, wait a minute, you know, in a respected mainstream publication like that, it's now acceptable. A Huffington Post editor tweeted a hashtag, kill all men. And you can buy t-shirts that say, so many men, so little ammunition. <laughs> there are even books with titles like, I hate men and no good men and are men necessary. And to my surprise, there are even some men who are jumping on the bandwagon. There's a male author who wrote a book where he said, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. And this one is not actually in the book because it's more recent. You may have seen this. The uh, director of the movie Avatar mm. was quoted in the news saying testosterone is a toxin that you have to work out of your system. So it's no wonder that surveys now show that a lot of men feel attacked and beaten down. One survey just a few years ago found that 46% of American men said that these days, society seems to punish men just for acting like men. Mm -hmm. But whether you agree or not, 46%, that's almost half. Yeah. That's a very large number. 
and even more recently, 55% in Britain said something very similar. So a lot of men do feel as if the culture has become hostile to masculinity. A psychotherapist who writes regularly in the Wall Street Journal, and she said, the young men, especially, the younger men coming into my practice are all feeling demoralized and demeaned and defeated because they feel like they're growing up in a culture that's hostile to masculinity. And so this is what I wanted to address. I wanted to say, where is this coming from? You know, you cannot really stand against a social trend unless you know where it's coming from, how it developed over time. And so, and of course, what I show is that it's uh, it's the secular script for masculinity that has turned harmful and embraces traits that we consider toxic. I go through a history to kind of show where the how secularism has had an impact on our view of, of men and masculinity. Yes, you know, I mean, several years ago, it might have been two decades ago, I remember reading an article that you may, I wonder if it's the same article, talked about is, are men necessary? And it talked about the high crime rate, you know, is, is by done by the single male. And, you know, most of the problems in society, drug dealing, abuse, all that is with the male. And with, is this genetic wrapping or something where you can take two female eggs and collide them together and produce an embryo? And so really is the man necessary now since two females can, or a single woman can produce a baby and so that whole article was about do we really need men if we got rid of men it'd be a much more peaceful society and back then that seemed like radical feminism you know but like you said today that seems to have become mainstream just what you're saying yes and you see the impact too in that men and boys are both doing worse than they were in the past both relative to women and relative to where they were in the past boys are falling behind at all levels of education, from hmm. kindergarten through college. Most colleges now are 60% women, 40% men. That's the average. And there are even colleges who are quietly implementing affirmative action to bring in more male students because they don't want it to go past 60% female. Uh, more women than men are graduating from graduate school as well, and even professional school like law and medicine. And then once they're an adult, Yes, men's rates of drug abuse is going up, rates of suicide, homelessness are all up, and rates of employment is going down. By the way, this doesn't show up in the unemployment statistics because they're not even looking for work anymore. So researchers had to dig deeper, and they now tell us that unemployment, at least here in the U.S., is at Depression-era levels. Wow. Yeah, that was a surprise when I read that. And... On top of that, their life expectancy has gone down in recent years. Women's has stayed the same, so it's not a general trend. Mm -hmm. Only male life expectancy has gone down. So a, a magazine called The New Scientist said the greatest factor, demographic factor in early death now is being male. Wow. So that's why I wrote the book, too, is I thought, you know, don't, isn't it time to have some compassion for yeah. men? I, I have two boys, right? So... I'm, I'm sensitive to the culture they're growing up in. Isn't it time now to, you know, uh, the feminist movement has done a great job in affirming girls and encouraging them to move forward. And they are moving forward rapidly in education and in their careers. But boys have not had that same kind of encouragement. And as a result, they are definitely falling behind. Failure to launch, you know that phrase. Uh -huh. yes, Young men are not figuring out what's my purpose in life. What should I be doing? And they're sitting in their parents' basement playing video games. So I really think it's time for us to think more seriously about whether there are ways that we should implement maybe some programs to help men, to help boys and men. 
Yeah, and I find it refreshing that you are writing on this subject because it's very effective uh, coming from a female. You know, I just spoke at a retreat of collegians and several faculty, and I addressed this topic, and I said, I'm quoting this book here from Nancy Piercy. And you saw all the, everyone kind of sit back and they go, whoa, woman. And I said, so how have people responded when you, as a female, are speaking on this subject? Well, I tell you, it is the most controversial book I've ever written. And that surprised me because I, I really thought my earlier book, Love Thy Body, would be more controversial. It deals with issues like abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, which is really the cutting edge now. People tell me it's more relevant now than it was when I wrote it. But this book, at least in the Christian world, has proved to be more controversial. Uh, ran classes on the book. I ran reading groups on the book. You know, getting lots and lots of feedback, and they would tell their family and friends about it. And the first question invariably was, "Whose side is she on?" Right. With that tone, <laughs> whose side <laughs> is she on? You know, the idea that you're either the assumption usually was actually, since I, since I'm a woman, uh, that I would be a male bashing feminist, right. <laughs> or I'm going to be some sort of angry reactionary. And so I had to rewrite the first chapter multiple times to try mm-hmm. to get people over that. No, actually, the book is not polemical. I'm not arguing for either either way. In fact, I should say the second question, if the first question was, what, whose side is she on? The second question was always, and why is a woman writing a book on masculinity anyway? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I got all of that. And when I told my class I was writing a book on masculinity, one male student shot back, what masculinity? It's been beaten out of us. Wow. So the the male students were often very defensive, but the female students were defensive as well. You know, even at a Christian college, you know, a lot of my young female students identify as feminists. And if I said anything positive about men, they say, well, women are like that, too. You know, women are strong or women are courageous or whatever it is. And I say, yes, yes. But this is a book about men. You know, that's Mm -hmm. why I am focusing on men. So, yeah, it has proven to be very controversial. And some people have also tried to pull it into the complementarian, egalitarian debate. And as you noticed when you read it, I hardly even touched on it. Mm -hmm. And I touched on it primarily, primarily to quote two of the top marriage researchers in the country, sociologist Brad Wilcox and psychologist John Gottman, both say that in their research, they are not really finding much difference between huh. couples who are complementarian and couples who are egalitarian. Brad Wilcox did research on both, and he said complementarian marriages are not inherently abusive and oppressive. Many of them test out as very happy. And then he did a study on, on egalitarian marriages and said they weren't any happier. They did not test out as any happier. And Brad Wilcox is Catholic. John Gottman is sort of a secular Jewish Jewish background. And he said, he has a great quote where he says, the people coming into my practice, I have some who believe that the husband should be like the head of the home, you know, in charge. And I have couples who are very egalitarian. And I'll tell you what, and here's how he puts it. Emotionally intelligent husbands have figured out the most important thing, which is how to convey honor and respect to your wife. Mm-hmm. And he says, if, they got, if they've got that down, their gender theory doesn't seem to make much practical difference. And so I don't actually get into it. That's not what I studied. I studied research who, who studied evangelicalism, not 
complementarianism. You know, that the sociologists aren't really out there much studying complementarianism per se, but there are a lot of studies on evangelicals. So two of my chapters deal with the uh, the outcomes of those studies. You know what's more amazing is that you share in the beginning of your book that you grew up in an abusive home and had a negative view of manhood and joined the feminist movement. So uh, take us through your journey a little bit. Yeah, uh, one psychologist who reviewed the book said, I'm glad you put that there because now we know you're not just speaking from an ivory tower. You're speaking from the trenches. You've had to work through this myself, yourself. So yes, I grew up in a home where my father was severely physically abusive. In books on abuse, they will sometimes ask, was it open hand or closed fist? Mm. And it was closed fist. Yeah, he was punching wow. and, and kicking. And so when I left home, I really, I tried to start my life over. I thought I could do that, right? I thought I could create a blank slate, leave my childhood entirely behind because it was just so painful. But this uh, connects with my becoming a Christian, actually. I had given up my Christian upbringing. I was raised Lutheran. Lutheran is, I don't know if you know this, but my family was Scandinavian and all Scandinavians are Lutheran. So it was, it was kind of an ethnic thing, just like, you know, all Irish are Catholic. Uh -huh. So my background was more ethnic than anything. And when I was in high school, I just started asking questions. How do we know it's true? That's That was my real question. Just how do we know it's true? And since we mentioned my father, he was one of the people I asked. He was a university professor. And I asked him point blank, why are you a Christian? He said, works for me. Hmm. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> you know, it's not working for me. And I had a chance to talk to a seminary dean, thought I'd get a more substantial answer. But all he said was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes. Hmm. Like it was a psychological phase that you would just outgrow. Hmm. So I decided maybe Christianity didn't have any answers. And I very intentionally walked away from my religious upbringing when I was about 16. But I decided, I realized very quickly that if there was no God, that had huge implications, that there was no purpose to life, no meaning to life. You know, we're just a product of chemical accidents mm -hmm. on a rock flying through space. There's no foundation for ethics and morality, right? It's just true for you, true for me. There's no objective standard. There's not even a foundation for knowledge because if all I have is my puny brain in the vast scope of time and space, what makes me think I could have some sort of universal objective truth? Ridiculous. Uh -huh. That's how I thought of it as a 16-year-old. Ridiculous. Uh -huh. And then my, my science classes convinced me that we're just biochemical machines anyway, so there's no such thing as free will. So yeah. determinism, skepticism, relativism, I had adopted all of these isms before I even graduated from high school. And it was some years later, I was going to school in Germany. Uh, we had lived there when I was a child. So I went back and... That's how I stumbled across the ministry of Francis Schaeffer, which is in Switzerland. And Francis Schaeffer is known for his apologetics. Yes, absolutely. And that was the first place I had ever encountered apologetics, that I'd ever met Christians who could answer my questions, you know, who could show me that Christianity is reasonable, that you could support it with good logic and reasons and arguments and evidence. And they understood all the secular isms that I had absorbed by then, too. I never met Christians who could understand what, you know, the isms that I was, you know, the secular isms that I had absorbed up until then, the Christians I met would say things like, you know, well, what's wrong with you? Why don't you have faith? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there were no answers. There was just, you know, maybe, maybe I, I was somehow morally at fault for not having faith. Whereas at Labrie, uh, Francis Schaeffer's ministry is called Labrie, which is French for the shelter. And at Labrie, I met people who actually welcomed questions and, you know, and loved having discussions. 
And so that is eventually how I became a Christian, was through apologetics, through Francis Schaeffer's ministry. But here's a side, so I've told my story, you know, that's my testimony, that's what I tell people. But here's a side to that that I have not told people before. And that is that at Labrie, on staff was a psychiatric social worker. And she was there because she knew that for a lot of people, their barriers against Christianity are not just intellectual, but also emotional. Right. Especially if they've grown up in a home, you know, where they're reacting against their parents, which is particularly true of pastor's kids and missionary kids. She was a missionary kid herself. Her name was Sheila Bird, and we called her Birdie. And it was Birdie who helped me to see that I had to deal with the trauma of my childhood, that I couldn't leave it behind like I tried to do, that you have to work through this. You have to work through to real emotional, psychological, and spiritual healing. And she modeled for me a kind of love that I had never encountered before. So that through Birdie, I came to have an experience of love that was deeper. It became it became a model of God's love. You know, when I left Labrie and I prayed, I would kind of have a model of, of Birdie up there, hmm. <laughs> you know, because that was the that was the greatest love I had ever experienced. And God's love is what ultimately heals. Mm-hmm. You know, love has the power to heal. It's kind of hard to explain it because that's all it is. You, we know in human in human relationships that love can be very healing. Well, if you work through to a level of spiritual experience with God's love, it's the greatest healing power around. And so in my introduction to the book, I say, in a sense, I've been writing this book my whole life because I have spent my whole life working through the psychological healing mm-hmm. where I could write a book that was positive toward men and toward masculinity. Yeah, that's terrific. Now, in your book, you say that men are torn between two competing definitions of masculinity today. What are those two definitions? Yeah, so the reason I put this right at the front of the book is what I told you earlier. When people would say, whose side is she on? I realized I had to address that right at the beginning of the book. And so I, I moved this study to the beginning because it's a study done by a sociologist. He's not a Christian. He's well enough known that he gets invited to speak all around the world. And so he came up with this clever experiment where he asked young men two questions. The first question is, what does it mean to be a good man? If you're at a funeral and in the eulogy, someone says he was a good man, what does that mean? And the sociologist said all around the world, men men had no trouble answering that. It Hmm. was easy. Honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing. Uh, be a provider, be a protector, be responsible, stand up for the little guy. I like that last one. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but he said, the the sociologists would say, well, where'd you learn that? And they'd say, well, it's just in the air we breathe. Mm-hmm. Or if they were in a Western country, they would often say it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. Mm. Right. And then he would follow up with a second question. He'd say, what does it mean if I say, man up be a real man and the young men would say no 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 that's completely different that's that means be tough be strong be be competitive win at all costs never give up um never show weakness get rich get laid i'm using their language yeah um and so this was fascinating because what it means is Men are made in God's image, and they do inherently, innately know what it means to be the good man. Romans 2, right? We Mm -hmm. all have a sense of God's law written in our hearts. 
but they often feel cultural pressure to be quote unquote the real man mm-hmm. which often include includes traits that on uh many of us would consider more toxic certainly if it's decoupled from the moral ideal of the good man it can slide into traits like entitlement dominance control and so on and, and so this gives us a better approach to these issues i would say because most men don't respond very well to being called toxic right mm-hmm. none of us would so what this means is that a more effective approach is to see if you can tap into their innate knowledge of what it means to be the good man you know support it affirm it draw it out encourage it mm-hmm. and that gives us a much more positive approach to these issues yeah it's that second definition is the one that people are reacting against, isn't it? That we need to get these definitions right, isn't it? Yes, exactly. The second definition, um, the, people say, well, the, the good man, don't you mean Christianity? You know, the Christian view of manhood? Mm. Yes, of course. But what it means is even people in cultures, he, he's done this, the sociologist has done this in every country from you know Brazil to Sweden to Australia. Uh, so there are many cultures that maybe don't have an overtly Christian teaching. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know what we call general revelation yeah. right? in, theologically special revelation is the bible but general revelation is people know intuitively of god's truth through their experience in the world and so this is part of general revelation that many people well universally universally men do have an innate sense of, of the good man oh. um, and of course it's backed up by what we know in scripture and then you write the second definition the real man is the one that's become secularized and uh I, I throughout the whole book then i kind of use this as a connecting thread you know how has modern culture lost the ideal of the good man how have we given in to the real man to the point where masculinity itself is often considered toxic oh. now your book does an excellent job in tracing how the definition of masculinity and the role of men changed from colonial to industrial to modern and this doesn't apply just to uh, America or the West. We're seeing it in Asia now and in other third world countries in Africa as they go through this process as well, as they're industrializing, getting more technical. Uh, so walk us through uh, this a little bit of how the definition of masculinity changed through these periods. You're right. Um, to keep the book at a readable length, I focused on America, but... The Industrial Revolution, of course, is is going global. And so I, I, I think it's totally applicable to other cultures as well. But it, so in America during the colonial era, which was largely Christian, um, men worked side by side with their children and their wives throughout the day on the family farm, the family industry, the family business. And so the, the ethos or the cultural expectation of manhood was very much oriented to caretaking responsibility for your family uh, even the definition of authority had a very specific meaning it meant the person responsible for the common good in other words as individuals you know we all look out for our own good i look out for my good you look out for your good but who's who's responsible for the common good of the marriage or of the family of the church civil society and so on and that's what authority was for the favorite word at the time was the person in authority was supposed to be disinterested meaning he was not supposed to look out for his own interest his mm-hmm. job was to look out for the interest of the whole mm-hmm. 
and by the way, a lot of people, when they read that part, say, well, I'd have a much higher view of authority if people still thought of it that way. Hmm. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, how did we lose that historically? So the Industrial Revolution took work out of the home. And of course, men had to follow their work out of the home into factories and offices. And for the first time, they were not working with people they loved and had a moral bond with, their families. They were working as individuals in competition with other men. Once again, we've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers. Our goal is to bring you the love of Christ and to equip you in your faith to always be ready to give a response. If you would like to hold an apologetics conference or series of teachings at your facility, contact Pat by calling him in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may email him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Be sure to browse through our listing of topics on our site. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. You will also find articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. An additional location to find Pat's messages is on YouTube. Look up Evidence and Answers and hit the subscribe button. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. Donating is simple. Just log on at evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers is grateful for one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a place to grow in your faith, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log in at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucker. Hey,